13. 13, uh-huh. Do a couple of paragraphs, please. Surely, friend Prachana, knowing, the Blessed One knows, seeing, he sees, he is vision, the Tathagata. That was the time when we should have asked the Blessed One the meaning. As he told us, so we should have remembered it. Yet the venerable Mahakachana is praised by the teacher and esteemed by his wise companions in the holy life. The venerable Mahakachana is capable of expounding the detailed meaning of the summary given in brief by the Blessed One without expounding the detailed meaning. Let the venerable Mahakachana expound it without finding it troublesome. <laughs> then listen, friends, and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, friend, the bhikkhus replied. The venerable Mahakachana said this. Okay. And the next, number 15. Okay, thanks. Friends, when the Blessed One rose from his seat, and went into his dwelling after giving a summary in brief without expounding the detailed meaning. That is, he could, as to the source through which perceptions and notions, born of mental proliferation, he said a man, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome, and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust. This is the end of resorting to rods here, these evil, unwholesome states cease without meaning. I understand the detailed meaning of it to be as well. Thank you. One of the things you'll notice in this paragraph 15 is a few ellipses. So these little dots mean that it's replacing a whole series. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't say everything, thank goodness, <laughs> that the Buddha said. He doesn't say it all again, but the dots indicate where he's jumped from one to it. Like he doesn't list all seven underlying tendencies again. Mm -hmm. So they're just shortening what is there in the original. So if you're doing it as an oral transmission, you would have been chanting the whole thing. But for us reading, thank goodness the translator has taken some out. All right. So we are about to get to number 16. This is the most important um, section in the whole sutta. So let's read the first half first, and we'll talk about that a little bit before we get on to the, what's on the next page. So number 16, the first paragraph, please. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives what one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a person with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable through the eye. Thank you. And then the rest of paragraph 16, or section 16, applies this to each of the other senses. So we'll just focus on this first half, and it will give us the model for understanding this. 
Does this little sequence that he starts with remind you of any other sequence that the Buddha has taught? Which, what? Dependent origination. This is like the beginning of dependent origination. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. So he's talking about the sense base of seeing. The eye is considered the internal sense base. Form, a visual object, is considered the external sense base. And when eye consciousness is also present, that means we see. That seeing is called contact. So three things have come together. The sense organ, the sense object, and the sense consciousness. And when those three come together, then there is contact at that sense door. That's the meeting of the three. This is the word pasa that we used earlier, what in Western terms is often called perception, but we're not calling it perception. So this is happening to us all the time, right? Through the eye door, through the ear door, the nose, tongue, body, and mind door, we are constantly getting hit with blasts of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, and feelings. Is the, uh, sense consciousness the same as perception? Say it again. The sense consciousness, is that a kind of perception? No, it's a, um, I would call it a sense datum. It's like the, it's before, in Buddhist terms we would call it before perception. So when the bell is struck, that sound is, is the sense datum and it has both consciousness and the sound wrapped together. That's, con that's contact. Our experience of it is, okay, all of human experience is these sense contacts are coming at us through the six sense doors. The consciousness is the knowing of it. You can kind of feel that as a mental event, right? It's the knowing of that bare phenomenon. And the object, the sound, is the object that's being known. It's just one experience, right? You don't go, okay, I'll send the consciousness, let me pick up the consciousness from back here and I'll send it out to meet that object. No, it doesn't happen like that. It's the object and the knowing together. So it's one experience, but you can look at the knowing side or you can look at the sense object side, right? If this sound were in a room with a corpse, the corpse wouldn't have consciousness. So the sense object would be there, but the sense consciousness wouldn't, and there wouldn't be an experience of hearing, right? But because we're alive, we've got the consciousness and we've got the object, so we can hear. So there, there's one experience, which is hearing, but there are two things we can, we can look at. We can look at our knowing of it, because we're sentient being, we're knowing all the time in this bare, sense data away. Or we can look at the quality of the sound. You know, we could say that's E flat or I don't know what it is, whatever it is. That sound has a certain quality and, and timber and so on. But it's one experience. Okay. Two aspects. How can one experience have two aspects? Is this bowl round or is it gold? There's only one bowl but I can either look at the roundness or I can look at the color. Same with sense experience, just one experience. <laughs> but I can look at the knowing side, which is happening only because I'm a sentient being. That sentience is consciousness that can receive that and know it 
And then there's the sound. You know, a lot of different sounds in the world. They have their own qualities and properties. They arise together. So the meaning of the three is contact. It's happening to us all the time. And when there's contact, there's feeling. This is straight out of dependent origination. You know, the, the, the sixth sense, ba- the name and form, the sixth sense bases, contact, and then the next step is feeling. Feeling is very specific here. The word is vedana in Pali. It's not emotion. It's a quality in every sense contact of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Actually, neither is the way it's described, but shorthand we say neutral. Every sense contact either has a quality of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor (coughs) unpleasant, which we sometimes shorten as neutral. Those are the three choices. It's happening at six sense doors, so you could say there are 18 possible feelings. But for now, we'll just say three feelings. Why is feeling so important in the chain of dependent origination? Why is it such a central link, Flavia? Because what? It can lead to craving. Yeah, it leads to craving. How so? Describe how that happens with the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. When it's pleasant, we want more, and when it's unpleasant, we don't want it, and when it's neutral, we check out. <laughs> yeah. So craving, in its aspects of greed, aversion, and delusion, is activated through these reactions to the three kinds of feeling. Pleasant feeling tends to stimulate. Wanting, unpleasant feeling tends to stimulate aversion. Neutral feeling tends to provoke ignorance. Why? Because we're not interested in it. It doesn't feed the underlying craving, so we tune out on it. Is that a strict causal condition? Does every pleasant feeling trigger greed? What, what makes a difference? Okay. When mindfulness is there, we, we don't react. Right? I and mean, if, if it's there and strong, we can be with pleasant feeling but not react with greed. Okay. Similarly for aversion, similarly for, for ignorance. Is, is, the mental perf- is, yeah, is the mental proliferation, the thoughts, images, and all that, also considered what comes in through the mind sense door? It is. Okay. Yeah, mental uh, thoughts and emotions, all the meditative states of mind are considered objects of the mind sense door. But even if it's originally triggered by like the bell. Okay, yes. So it doesn't have to be just originating in the mind to be considered the mind sense door. That's right. Yeah. You know, walk down the car, uh, walk down the street, see a beautiful new car, desire arises based on pleasant contact. The desire is a thing of the mind. Think about, oh, you know, I really like that color of Prius. I wonder where the new, you know, Toyota dealer is located in San Rafael. <laughs> That's mind door stuff, even though it's related to an external object. Even, I mean, this is interesting, even the feeling, let's call it feeling tone so that we're really clear it's Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The feeling tone is a mind door object. It's not intrinsic in the object itself. So this sound could be experienced as pleasant, but some people might experience it as unpleasant because of past associations, conditioning, or whatever. So the sound is one thing. The feeling tone, it's almost a verb. How are you feeling that tone, that sound arriving? And it's based on our individual natures and conditioning and habits and likes and dislikes. So even the feeling 
is a mental event. So, yes. I'm just thinking so many times you wake up and you're way down the path of the mental event and you can't even remember what the sense trigger was that originated that yes. thought. Yes. And the good thing is, from a point of view of meditation, you don't need to. I mean, sometimes it's fun when you, you know, mind's a little still and you find yourself two minutes into a big fantasy to trace each step back and realize where it got started and how we leapfrog from one to another. But you don't need to do that. From the point of view of meditation, we don't have to unravel that tangle. That's a temptation, you know, especially from a Western psychological point of view. We want to unravel the tangle and get back to the source, but we don't need to. In meditation, we can just drop the tangle. Just come back to the present moment. What's happening now? Just disengage from the tangle altogether. So, here we're in dependent origination. With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. Now, this is interesting because in dependent origination, there is no element of perception. But people often ask as they start to investigate their experience and they see the importance of perception, where does it fit in to dependent origination? And what's being uh, uh, hinted at or alluded to here is it follows feeling. Now, I don't remember the Buddha saying that except in this sutta where he confirms, he confirms later. Um, the, the perception seems to follow feeling in this outline. So we feel something, you know, there's an impingement, we feel it, and then we notice it. And then we perceive it by memory. So, you know, seems reasonable. What one feels, that one perceives. Remember, perceiving is not intrinsically problematic. It's this classification thing that goes on, and it's okay. What one perceives, that one thinks about. Now something is starting to happen here that's a little more active. Notice the very first part of this sequence is totally um, involuntary. There, you know, there's contact, which is consciousness. Consciousness is not volitional. And the eye is not volitional and the object is not volitional. Contact is happening. That's not because we're willing it. And when there's contact, there's feeling. It's based on our past conditioning, but you don't have to think about how to feel something. You know, you just know you like it or you don't like it or it's neutral. Not, not volitional either, really. Then what one feels, that one perceives. This also happens pretty automatically. Oh, I know, that's, you know, that's a friend. That's someone I don't know. That's a car. Oh, that's a salesperson in a store. That happens automatically. Not much will has come in yet. Now, what one perceives, that one thinks about. So we're starting to get volitional. We're starting to get active. And once we start thinking, we're engaging more of our you know, emotional energy in it. For instance, why do we choose to think about some things and not think about others? Ah, because some things strike us with more charge. Those are the things we tend to fix on and then think about. We don't think about everything we perceive. You know? How much time have you spent thinking about this this afternoon, even though you've been perceiving it? 
you know, for quite a while. So once we start thinking about something, there's, a little, there's starting to be a little investment of emotional energy there. But then it goes on. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. So this is the word papancha. There's actually a verb, papanchetti. <laughs> that to pro, you know, he proliferates, she proliferates is papanchetti. So that's what's being used here. We're mentally proliferating. Now, is thinking about something inherently problematic? You can think about something and it can be safe, right? Good. So thinking is not inherently a problem. If I look at this, I think, oh, I'm really appreciative. Sean left me a pitcher of water, and when I need it, I can pour it and drink it in this, in this class. Useful. A thought can be useful. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. We getting into danger? Yeah. So the leap from thinking, which can be controlled, let's say. We can, as you all said earlier, we can approach thinking in a controlled way if mindfulness is strong. We can think clearly, we can think calmly, we can drop it when the need for it is over. But now we're into proliferating. And this is where the process starts to get out of our control. Proliferating kind of means we've lost charge of the thought stream and it's running away with itself based on emotions, past associations, conditioning, underlying tendencies, and all of that stuff. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a person with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable through the eye. Now we're in trouble. (laughs) Because at first, it was a pretty organic process. Consciousness and objects, things were being known, there was contact, contact brought feeling, perception. That's all normal. The Buddha's doing that. Then, what one perceives, one thinks about. Okay, if there's a lot of mindfulness, we can keep that steady. That can be appropriate, measured, calm, reasonable. Then we get into proliferating. The, the focus is still on our activity. We're proliferating. But what we know is also going on is we're losing control. Proliferation usually comes from a loss of control or choice, let's say a loss of choice about the thought process. And then the next step is we're no longer in control, we're actually at effect. So the focus goes not from our own activity or our own volition, it goes to what besets a person. So now all the proliferation that we've engaged in is coming back on us like a burden. And we've stirred up all these old associations and hopes and fears and regrets and worries and future anxiety. And now they're, it's like they achieve a life of their own and they're attacking us. They're besetting us. It's as though the artist painted the tiger and the tiger came to life. 
and ate them. This is what we do with our imagination. Take anything that you've been worried about lately. Can you see, and I have my own things too, I'm not exempting myself from this, can we see that the thought about that situation doesn't have to be frightening? Because it's just a thought. We may be sitting quite safely in our own home, warm, comfortable with friends or family, quite safe. The thought makes us afraid. So you get a lot of these thoughts coming, each one making us afraid, worried, regretful, ashamed, embarrassed, and then we're the victim of that proliferation. So what, the, what Mahakachana is pointing to, which the Buddha will confirm, is that proliferation sets off a kind of chain reaction where these thoughts and feelings have a life of their own, and then we become the victim of them. Troublesome thinking begin arise once, you know, following the sensation. Well, it's quite possible to have a clear, rational, non-problematic thought about a sensation, even a painful sensation. I could have a painful sensation in my knee, and I just go, "That's a painful sensation. I'm not going to keep sitting here if it gets a little bit stronger. I'm going to change my posture, and then I drop it." But If I start to proliferate, oh man, I had a friend who sat through a knee pain and it actually injured his ACL where he had had a surgery and I saw him walking around on crutches for the last three days of the retreat and then I think they had to take him to the hospital. I can't go to the hospital now because I have a big piece of work coming up. If I let this go another minute, I'm probably going to be bound for... That's where it spins out of reality into imagination. And that's where it becomes problematic. So you notice that thinking can be related just to the present moment, the way things are, seeing things the way they are. That's a pain. It's happening in the right knee. I may have an old skiing injury there. I should be a little careful of it. But then these proliferations beset a person with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable through the eye. So it's all of a sudden exploding into past and future. And when you get when we get entangled in past and future, then we're really at risk. Because past and future aren't real. You know, past and future are only thoughts in the moment. But if we don't see them clearly as thoughts, we take them as real and they become burdensome. So it's the proliferation that sets that up. We get, lo- we get lost in past and future. Most people live their lives lost in past and future. As meditators, we step out of that whirlwind from time to time. But to be honest, we live a lot of our lives in past and future also. Sanity is being in the present, seeing a thought arise, seeing it persist, seeing it pass away. That's what the Buddha said was so wonderful and marvelous about his experience. So, as meditators, we really have our work cut out for us. It is to establish a sane relationship to thinking. And the first step in that is to start to understand this phenomenon of papancha. To be able to recognize it when it happens, know how it's different from useful thought, and to see how it stirs things up that then land on us 
as problems. Sometimes what you just described actually occurs in my thinking process. Excellent. But sometimes it doesn't, and I have to step back, and then I just have to, I just say stop, because I can't, I can't reach a, a place of calmness to be able to let go. Mm -hmm. So I say mm -hmm. into my mind, mm -hmm. stop, mm -hmm. just stop. Yes. And, and that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. But yeah. it allows me to then, you know, take a breath. Because, yeah. You know, it, it can be, gets, like you said, entangled. Yes. That's very skillful, you know, and it takes quite a bit of meditative background to be able to do that. So this is what we sometimes call the sword of discriminating wisdom. When you see that a thought is going and it's starting to go out of control in a way that's not helpful, you recognize this is not going to be helpful. This pattern of thinking is leading me down a road that I'm pretty familiar with. And I know where it goes. It goes into fear or regret or hope or desire, something that isn't going to be helpful. And you say, stop it. And sometimes we can do that and it will work, just as you're saying. So that's a very skillful thing to do. Just cut it. So the sword of wisdom in the Tibetan, actually the Mahayana, Tradition is represented by the uh, Bodhisattva Manjushri. Mm -hmm. And you'll see him holding that flaming sword. And that's one of the functions. That, that sword is to cut delusion. And one of the forms of delusion is papancha. So when we can see that and we can just stop it, that's very skillful. Now, can that be misapplied? Yeah. Because sometimes our thoughts are going and we just think, I'd rather be calm. I wish I was concentrated in this sitting. Let me see if I can just suppress that thought energy. That doesn't help. That just bottles it up. So when we can see with wisdom, it's not going in a useful direction and we can just cut it, that can be good. But beware of suppressing feelings with it. You want to cut the chain of thought, but you don't want to suppress feelings, emotions that are there. So this is an, an area that um, we really want to become very familiar with in our practice. When is the spinning out starting to happen? So I'll, I want to read you some of the other words that are, you have been used to translate this word papancha. Papancha was not well understood when these teachings started coming to the West into English. Early translators looked at it and they didn't know what the heck the Buddha meant by it. Because it doesn't appear in that many suttas. I mean, I could only, I, I mentioned some suttas on the handout. Um, you'll see a short list at the bottom of some other suttas where this is described. And actually, you could add to that, there was one more I just found out. In the Sutta Nipata section, 5.30, I think it is. Anyway, you can check that out, 5.30. And he doesn't give a clear definition of the word anywhere. So translators had to look at all the places it was used and use their intuition and you know, what is being pointed to here. And I feel pretty comfortable now with the rendering as conceptual proliferation or mental proliferation. But I'll give you some of the other translations that were used and some are still being used today. Um, expansion, diffuseness, spreading out, complication, 
objectification, diversification, fixation, and obsession. Some of the translations I found um, for this word papancha. I think conceptual proliferation kind of touches on all of them. So I think it, it's a good translation. I think it's what's being um, pointed to. But I, I want to pull out one other of these translations and look at it for a second, and that is the translation objectification. It's actually the word that Tanisaro Bhikkhu is using now for papancha. And what he's pointing to, I think, is this function that language has to make solid objects out of transitory phenomena. You know how when you examine your direct experience through meditation and you see that everything is just a momentary arising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing. There's nothing, when you're seeing from that space, there's nothing that could even be called a solid thing. That's one of the key meditative insights into impermanence. Everything's dissolving moment by moment. What concepts do is to fix that momentary flow and reify it and make it look like there's something solid there. Like think about the name of your best friend. You know, I bet you have a very good image of what your friend is supposed to be like. You know, even though you might have seen him in a bunch of different situations and different emotions, I bet you have some kind of solid image of what what that person is like. So we take this changing flow and we concretize it, we try to fix it, and it if we don't understand what we're doing, the blind use of language obscures the transitory nature of things. So that's another way that papancha gets us into trouble. It creates substance where there's not in our experience. This is a universal problem with language. This is not just a Buddhist problem. It's a universal problem. But papancha contributes to it, and that's why I think Tan Jeff likes this word objectification. So, um, I want to read you Bhikkhu Bodhi's description of this. He says, the Pali word papancha suggests mental fabrication, obsessive mental constructions, and diluted conceptualization. (laughs) Does that give a sense of the weight? I'll read that again. Papancha suggests mental fabrication, obsessive mental construction, and diluted conceptualization. So the mental fabrication we've been talking about, the obsessive nature of it we focused on, the fact that it's all constructed, thoughts of past and future are all constructed. They're not here now, they're not real, but we construct them through imagination. And diluted conceptualization. We'll get to this a little further along, but as we expand our time into past and future, generally what comes along is we think, I have been existing from the past through the present and will exist into the future. So we give the self a continuity that it doesn't have. (laughs) The self isn't continuous. We're all just bundles of changing mental and physical phenomena. But we construct the view that self is continuing from past through the present into the future. 
Let's read um, the second part of uh, 16, and then I want to go back and talk in a little more detail about papancha, dependent on the ear and sounds. Where were we up? Yes, please. Thanks. Um, dependent on the ear and sound, dependent on the nose and odors, dependent on the tongue and flavors, dependent on the body and tangibles, dependent on the mind and mind objects, mind consciousness arises. The meaning of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a, a person with respect to past, future, and present mind objects yeah, thank you. So this is basically just taking the same formula that we went through for eye and forms and eye consciousness and applying it equally to the other five senses. So we're covering all six sense bases and showing that they operate in the same way and that we can proliferate about all of them and then those proliferations come back to beset us, leading to suffering. So uh, let's talk in a little more detail about um, papancha. It's said that there are three main, I won't say main, actually three varieties of papancha. This comes from the commentaries. It's not explicit in the suttas, but it seems like a good list. The three kinds of papancha are papancha based on craving, on conceit, and on views. The Pali is tanha, papancha, mana, papancha, and ditti, papancha. And when you think about this, I think you can see all three of these in your um, experience. I certainly can. Craving papancha is, I think about what I want in the future. Where am I going to get that new Prius? When am I going to have the money to buy it? Um, the desire force. There's one example. Fear and anger can also operate in the same way as forms of craving. So these strong emotional components lead us into past and future with a lot of intensity and a lot of burden, a lot of weight. That's the force of craving. Mana is basically where self-judgment comes in and comparing, the comparing mind. I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable enough, I'm not going to be good at this job, I'm not going to find a partner, I'm not worthy for a promotion or a raise, I won't find work because I don't uh, know enough, I don't have skills. So all these kinds of judging thoughts, or the opposite side is pride. You know, I'm much better than they are, I should be getting the raise, why are they getting promoted when I'm not getting promoted? That's the pride side. And even the claiming that we're equal in Buddhist understanding is also conceit. We're still comparing ourselves, trying to find a solid ground. I think if we look at the motivation underlying mana comparison, it's trying to find some ground where we can establish ourselves. Okay, maybe I'm not as good as that person, but at least I'm this far below them. They look solid and I'm here, so I must be solid too. Or that person's there and I know I'm better than them. 
So we're trying to find some solid ground for self to rest on in the middle of all this insecure impermanence. And then ditti is when we disagree with people. I mean, during the campaign, I bet everybody's so glad we're out of the 2012 election season. I certainly am. All the different views that you'd hear from right and left and the far right and the far left and that whole spectrum and everybody was so sure their view was right and so much heat and passion about it. And I spent some hours on the meditation cushion and entertaining some of my political views at that time. <laughs> so I know it's, it's going on in the world. And we feel really strongly about those views. You know, we really feel my view is right and their view is wrong. And we can get very head up about this. I have friends who used to like to find people you know, from the opposition party and try to convince them why their view was wrong. Actually, two different people during the last season who were, who were on an other end of the spectrum from me wanted to take me aside and convince me why their view was right. It was, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't engage because I think that's fruitless, but it was very interesting. So that attachment to views, we can see it in the political world, we can see it in the Dharma world. I believe this, you believe that, or, you know, if you're a Christian or a Muslim, you're not even on my map, you know. Um, we can see it in relationships. We have a view of what our partner should be doing to live up to our ideal of what our partner should be doing. And they have a view, you know, the same thing about us, or in relation to our parents or our friends. They shouldn't have done that to me. They should have done this instead. We can get quite heated in our relationship to them based on those views, and their only views. The other person in the exchange will have a different view. So these are the things we, we spin out about, things we want or don't want, ways we judge or compare ourselves, and views and opinions. When you look at what the proliferation consists of, I think this is a pretty comprehensive list. So again, as, as a, a matter of self-knowledge, I think it's really helpful for us to start taking a closer look at our papancha, which is first knowing when we're proliferating, and then seeing what's the content, what's the fuel, and seeing if it is one of these three, because very often it is. I haven't, I, I haven't identified my own papancha as being anything other than these three. Maybe there is some, but I haven't yet identified. So it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good list. Now, this is interesting because although it's not explicit in the suttas, uh, there are some references to it. So there's this very good sutta in the Majjhima on the five aggregates, which is uh, Majjhima number 109. And in this sutta, the Buddha is explaining to the bhikkhus um, why they shouldn't be clinging to the aggregates as I or mine, the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And he leads them through this um, dialogue, which is a, a very beautiful and succinct, and asks, Bhikkhus, what do you think? Is material form, and simply we could just say this body, is material form permanent or impermanent? Right. Venerable sir, indeed. <laughs> impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? And here it means lasting happiness. Is it going to solve the problem of life? 
is what is impermanent going to solve the problem of life and give lasting happiness? Or at some point is it going to become unsatisfactory? Unsatisfactory, right? Eventually, unsatisfactory, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent, unsatisfactory, and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No. There's no point in hanging an identity on what's going to change. So, it's from this passage that the commentators say they draw out tanha, mana, and ditti. Because they say, this is mine. Which does that sound like? This is mine. My precious. (laughs) Craving. This is mine is the activity of craving. This I am. I am. Conceit. That's what conceit is, is the formation of the view. I am somebody. I'm better than some people. I'm worse than some people. I'm equals. I am somebody. And then this is myself. This body is who I am. These thoughts are who I am. Um, these feeling tones are who a pleasant, unpleasant, are who I am. This is, my, this is where myself is located. View. This is the view of self. So, the Buddha said that when we engage in this, this is what's called identification. Identification is when we claim, this is mine, this is me, this is myself. That's how we create a personality view. That's how we believe in the view of ourselves as a separate and ongoing personality. It's called Sakaya Ditti. And until we get to Dharma practice, we generally really believe that. Therefore, bhikkhus, any kind of material form whatever, whether past, future, or present, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So seeing with wisdom undercuts the papancha tendencies of craving, conceit, and views. Seeing with proper wisdom, not claiming as I or mine, is freeing. Which is this the concept of non-self? Um, I don't even want to go there, but mm-hmm. no. <laughs> but but um, when I look at, you know, I'm not a therapist, but when I look at adolescent development, you know, childhood development, and um, where I the the arena that I work in, it it is so important mm-hmm. for children, particularly children who are have are coming from a very challenged environment, to have a sense of self. Absolutely. So, so you wouldn't. I, I, I look, you know, this idea of moving towards what we're discussing here is comes from wisdom to me that has arrived because I've had I, I've developed a sense of self. Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully it's a positive sense of self, and if not, I was in therapy for a very long time. But mm-hmm. but by arriving at that positive sense of self, it has given me then the opportunity to work on letting go of that self. But I don't think you can let, do this until you've done that. And I'm just think, wondering if that's like, you know, really off the wall for somebody like a learned person, teacher side of like you. No, thank you. I agree with everything you said. Um, growing up, 
there's no way to escape developing a sense of self. There's no way. And there are healthy senses of who we are, and there are damaging senses of who we are. So our whole educational system, you know, from the family, through the schools, through universities, should be constructed around giving people a very healthy sense of self. And how is that communicated? Um, I value you because I love you. Basically, it seems to me that's how it gets communicated. The Dalai Lama was asked about this kind of um, epidemic of self-judgment and lack of self-worth that we feel in the West. He didn't know what people were talking about. He said, in Tibet, we don't have that because children grow up being loved by their parents, by their aunts and uncles, by their grandparents, by their extended family. They get a lot of uh, positive reinforcement, that's the way I'd say it, and they tend to grow up with a really healthy sense of self, self-esteem, self-respect, self-valuing, self-love. That is a great foundation for Dharma practice. And if we've come up through adolescence and early adulthood and we don't have a healthy sense of self, then Dharma practice can help us develop a healthy sense of self. I would venture that everybody in this room has a sense of self. Because the sense of self only goes, conceit is only uprooted at, at full awakening. So it's going to be with us for a long time, this sense of self. So it'd be very good if we all work on developing a very positive sense of self. So how do we do that? One foundation is sila. We need to look over our past actions, at least in somewhat recent memory, and feel good about them. The Buddha said that um, being able to look at our conduct and feel blamelessness is one of the highest forms of bliss for a lay person, for an ordinary person. So we need to work on our conduct so that we feel relatively blameless and good about how we're behaving in the world. So sila is a foundation for a healthy sense of self. Metta is an really important foundation for a healthy sense of self. We need to be able to feel loving-kindness toward people we come in contact with, and we need to be able to feel it toward ourselves. So as far as I'm concerned, if somebody has a really good degree of sila and a really good degree of metta, they have a pretty good foundation for a healthy sense of self. So you know, I think those are two very important areas for Dharma people to, to work toward you know, to work to developing. And that healthy sense of self, what happens when that comes is that we don't feel we have to manipulate the inner world so much because it feels healthy and trustworthy. We can surrender to it. So that lets go of the tightness, of controlling. There's more relaxation. There's a sense of ease in meditation. And relaxation opens the door to concentration, and concentration opens the door to insight. So, very, very important. And we understand this sense of self that we've developed is also transitory. Okay, I have metta often. I don't have metta all the time. I recognize when metta isn't there. I really try to refine my sila, and I see I still say some things that are unskillful to people. So, we don't imagine that we're perfect. But we, you know, and we still see the changing nature of those conditions, but we come back to it, you know, frequently enough that it feels 
reliable to us. Sila and metta become a reliable refuge for us. So let's, um, this is really uh, the heart of the sutta that we have, we have just covered with these um, two passages, but let's, you know, let's finish the narrative, let's take the narrative a little farther along and uh, see where it goes from here. So we were up to 17. We just did 17, right? Second part? All right, let's do 17. it is possible to point out the manifestation of contact. When there is the manifestation of contact, it is possible to point out the manifestation of feeling. When there is the manifestation of feeling, it is possible to point out the manifestation of perception. When there is the manifestation of perception, it is possible to point out the manifestation of thinking. When there is the manifestation of thinking, it is possible to point out the manifestation of besetment by perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation. When there is the ear, a sound, and ear consciousness, when there is the nose, an odor, and nose consciousness, when there is a tongue, the tongue, a, fav- a flavor, and tongue consciousness, when there is the body, a tangible and body consciousness, when there is the mind, a mind object, and mind consciousness, it is possible to point out the manifestation of besetment by perceptions and notions born of mental deliberation. Thank you. This doesn't say anything very much more than has already been said, does it? It's just saying these are the conditions for that sequence to arise. The punchline is in the next section, section 18. So let's go ahead and read that directly. When there is no I, no form, and no I consciousness, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of contact. When there is no manifestation of contact, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of feeling. When there is no manifestation of feeling, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of perception. When there is no manifestation of perception, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of thinking. When there is no manifestation of thinking, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of besetment by perceptions and notions, one of mental proliferation. And let's finish up 18. (laughs) When there is no ear, no sound, and no ear consciousness, when there is no nose, no odor, and no nose consciousness, when there is no tongue, no flavor, and no tongue consciousness, when there is no body, no tangible, and no body consciousness, when there is no mind, no mind object, and no mind consciousness, it is impossible to point out the manifestation of besetment by perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation. Thank you. Sound a little nihilistic? <laughs> let, me, let me say a little bit first. 
So this is one of those passages that one comes to in the suttas and one reads it and goes, what on earth is being pointed to here? It's really kind of cryptic, isn't it, at best? So I want to suggest it's not clear exactly what's being meant by this passage, but if I look at it in the context of the other things that I've read, what I suspect is being pointed to is the condition of the fully enlightened one not taking birth again. So when one is fully liberated, according to the Theravadan view, the five aggregates don't reappear, is the way it's often said. Or more commonly, there is no further birth, there is no next life. So generally, as long as when the mind is not fully liberated, when we die, there is some forward momentum from the kilesas, from the asavas, whatever you want to call it, some form of greed, aversion, delusion, some form of craving, that's going forward that causes a birth to take place and a new being to arise that sort of takes some of the karma of that past life. That's a traditional Theravadan understanding of rebirth. I think what's being pointed to here is the ending of that samsaric journey, that when one is fully enlightened, as it said, birth is destroyed. Or as the Buddha uttered after his enlightenment, house builder, you are seen, you will build no house again. So I think that's what's being pointed to, to the no manifestation of contact. Do you think it's uh, pointing to emptiness too, like the Heart Sutra? It seems very similar. It's funny, it sounds a lot like the Heart Sutra, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, uh, no ears, no, no, no mind yeah. yeah, almost lifted from. Another way that it might be understood, and I think this could be uh, similar to the Heart Sutra, is if there is absolutely no clinging or dependency, then you know, one is in a state of emptiness. When there's no clinging, there is emptiness. So it could be pointing to that. My sense in the context of all the other suttas in the Pali Canon is it's more likely pointing to what's called Nibbana without residue. That means the one has attained final Nibbana and then passed away. There's no residue in the sense there are no five aggregates continuing. That's my guess, but I don't know. Yes, Susan? I think what I wanted to ask is, would the, would the Buddha advise us to stop window shopping? <laughs> well, it, because what do you what, mean? What it kept, sort of spoke to me was that if I couldn't control the papancha, I could go back right. and control the contact. Or, like, I had more options. Is that okay? I mean, obviously mm-hmm. that's not ideal, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but if, I can't contr- if I keep getting on the same train, maybe I need to not walk in the station? Very good. I think that's the heart of the sutta. That if we don't want to go down that, the ride that the proliferation takes us on, don't step on board a thought. I think that is the practice instruction from this sutta. Um, So, final nibbana might solve the problem completely. Short of that, (laughs) we get to figure out when papancha is starting and whether we want to go down that road or not. So that's the practical lesson for our meditation. Don't hop on that papancha train. Absolutely. So I want to skip um, 
I want to finish the narrative and then come back and have a few more Dharma points, but I want to skip the a couple of paragraphs. Uh, let's see, what are we up to? We're up to 19. I'm going to let you read 19 and 20 on your own. They're kind of interesting, but basically, they went and got the Buddha. And they said, this is what Mahakachana said when we asked him to explain it in detail. Is that correct? And so let's read um, number 21. Yeah, let's read number 21. Mahakachana is wise, Bhikkhus. Mahakachana has great wisdom. If you had asked me the meaning of this, I would have explained it to you in the same way that Mahakachana has explained it. Such is the meaning of this, and so you should remember it. Good, thanks. So this is the Buddha putting his seal of approval (laughs) on this discourse, and therefore the tradition holds this text with equal weight as though the Buddha had said it. So this will often happen. Whether this is an actual event, that the Buddha actually did come out and say those words, or whether it's a rhetorical device that the editors put in to say, this is authentic Dhamma, I really don't know. But within the tradition, this validates this teaching as the equivalent of having been delivered by the Buddha. So we are meant to have as much faith in this text as if the Buddha had said it through his own mouth. And then let's finish with um, 22, please. And this was said, the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, just as if a man exhausted by hunger and weakness came upon a honey ball, (laughs) wherever he would taste it, he would find a sweet, delectable flavor. So too, Venerable Sir, any able-minded bhikkhu Whenever he might scrutinize with wisdom the meaning of this discourse on the Dhamma, we find satisfaction and confidence of mind. Venerable Sir, what is the name of this discourse on the Dhamma? As to that, Ananda, you may remember this discourse on the Dhamma as the honey ball discourse. <laughs> that is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. <laughs> Thank you. So that is why this is called the honey ball. It was Ananda's invention. And this term honey ball, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, is, you know, it can be a mixture of honey and um, flour and ghee and uh, molasses. A lot of, so it's not just honey, but it's something you could really take and eat. Mm. Sounds like a gulab jamun or something. Doesn't it? So an Indian sweet. So this is a very sweet sutta that we've hung out with today. So the gist of it is just what um, Susan said. It's for us to start to become aware of proliferation and not get on the train. And this is stressed. I want to just pull out a couple of other sutta references that bring this point home clearly and strongly. So this is one of the suttas that's on the handout. It's 4.14 from the Sutta Nipata. I'll just read it because I don't have it to hand out to everyone. I'll just read it. This is a, a, a questioner coming to the Buddha. I ask the kinsman of the sun, this is just one of the names that he was called by, the kinsman of the sun, the great seer, about seclusion and the state of peace. 
Seeing in what way is one unbound, clinging to nothing in the world? This is a great question, huh? How should we see that we're unbound, not caught in bondage, clinging to nothing in the world? And this is the Buddha's reply. They should put an entire stop to the root of objectification classifications. I am the thinker. This is Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation. But what is being translated by objectification classifications is papancha plus sankha. So you could say notions born of proliferation. They should put an entire stop to the root of notions of proliferation based on I am the thinker. That's an, that I am the thinker is an interpretation of the word I am. So I am is the fundamental conceit. Tanisaro Bhikkhu is interpreting it at, as its meaning, I'm the thinker. And to me, that's a little limited. I think I am has a bigger sense than that. But his understanding is that I am the thinker. And this is his explanation. This is Tanisaro Bhikkhu. The perception I am the thinker lies at the root of these classifications in that it reads into the immediate present a set of distinctions, being and not being, thinker and thought, identity, non-identity, that then can proliferate into mental and physical conflict. The conceit inherent in this perception thus forms a fetter on the mind. To become unbound, one must learn to examine these distinctions, which we all take for granted, to see that they are simply assumptions that are not inherent in experience and that we would be better off to be able to drop them. We got that right. We'd be better off. Okay. So it's dropping the, basically the distinction of duality. This is a lot like the, um, I don't know if it reminds you of any text. It reminded me of the Bahia Sutta in the Udana. Remember that story? So there's this guy living in the south of India who thinks he's fully enlightened. He's a spiritual teacher. He's got lots of students. He's quite well supported. And he thinks he's enlightened. But then a deva comes and visits him. Deva is a kind of heavenly being, a little bit like an angel. And he asks the deva, am I enlightened? Well, that should have been a clue right there. <laughs> but the deva says, you're not enlightened. You're not even on a path to enlightenment. You haven't even started on the path yet. Oh, the guy's very deflated. He goes, do you know anybody who is enlightened? And he said, yes, there is a teacher up in the north, a recluse named Gautama, known as the Buddha, who's wandering around in northern India. You could go meet him. I'll tell you where he is. And he told him where the Buddha was hanging out. So Bahi immediately dropped everything and took to the road and walked up to find the Buddha. And he found the town that the Buddha was staying in, but he wasn't at the monastery. And the monk said, he's gone into town for alms round. So Bahia trucks into town and he finds this being with magnificent face, great posture, a lot of radiance and presence. Must be the guy. So he goes up and asks him, Venerable Sir, you must be the, the one known as the Buddha. Will you give me your teaching in brief? Please, I see you're on your alms round. The Buddha said, I can't do it right now. I'm on my alms round. And he said, life is short. Who knows how long you will live or I will live. Please give me your teaching in brief. And the Buddha says, I can't do it right now. I'm on my alms round. 
So Bahia asks the third time, and as you may know, the third time always works. <laughs> so the Buddha gave him his teaching in brief, and it was this. This is how you should train, Bahia. In the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, let there be just the herd. In the sensed, let there be just the sensed. In the cognized, let there be just the cognized. Then there will be no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. Then you will be neither here, nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. He's saying, don't make you on the basis of your sense experience. Don't build a you in relation to experience. And when Bahia heard that, he woke up. He was obviously someone with a lot of paramis, a lot of spiritual qualities, a lot of development. And then he just needed that pointing for his mind to release and become liberated. An hour later, it said, he was walking through a field where a mother cow was protecting its calf, and he got too close to the calf. The cow gored him, and he died on the spot. So his message to the Buddha about, please teach me in brief, we don't know how long you will be here or I will be here, was right on. But he got the teaching, he was freed. Um, he was liberated. But this is the same pointing that uh, Tanisara Bhikkhu is saying, you know, don't imagine I am the thinker, or I am the hearer, or I am the seer. In the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, let there be just the herd. And take the eye out of it. And then I wanted to share one other sutta passage with you. It's another kind of nice story. Anuruddha was another great disciple of the Buddha, who became enlightened over course of practice. And he had gone away to um, practice on his own in one part of the country, and the Buddha was staying in another part of the country. And as he was practicing, he had a reflection. And he said um, that his reflection was seven thoughts of a, of a practitioner. And they had to do with, he phrases them as, this Dhamma is for. And I think he means this Dhamma is realizable for or this Dhamma is realized by. So I'll read you the seven. This Dhamma is for one with few desires, not for one with strong desires. This Dhamma is for one who is content, not for one who is discontent. This Dhamma is for one who resorts to solitude, not for one who delights in company. This Dhamma is for one who is energetic, not for one who is lazy. This Dhamma is for one with mindfulness established, not for one who is muddle-minded. This Dhamma is for one who is concentrated, not for one who is unconcentrated. This Dhamma is for one who is wise, not for one who is unwise. The Buddha was living on the other side of the country, but he read Anuruddha's mind. And he immediately projected what's called the mind-made body. Created. You read about this in Don Juan also. It's one of the psychic powers in that shaman tradition. He could generate a body that looked like his and immediately landed next to Anuruddha and visited with him. And he said, Anuruddha, those are, good, uh, those are seven good thoughts. 
But there's one more you should add to that list. And that eighth one is, this Dhamma is for one who delights in non-proliferation. Who takes delight in non-proliferation, not for one who delights in proliferation, who takes delight in proliferation. And the word is papancha. So this Dhamma is for one who takes delight in non-papancha. The Pali is nip-papancha, not for one who delights in papancha. He said, now, now you have these. These are called the eight thoughts of a great person about the Dhamma. So I think this is the invitation in our meditation. Do we delight in spinning out in thoughts, manufacturing thoughts, of which we have a great creative ability? And we could keep going forever. You know, people come on a three-month course and they think, I'm going to think all my thoughts in the first month and then I'll be fed up with thinking. <laughs> But it doesn't work like that. Into the three-month course, we're still thinking thoughts, you know, and plenty of them, no end of thoughts. What do we delight in? Do we delight in the thinking of thoughts? There is an attraction to thinking, there's no doubt about it. Or do we delight in nipapancha, in non-proliferation? Start to feel in in your meditation, what is the quality when you're not spinning out in a lot of conceptual thought. What does that feel like? At the very least, there is a great quality of peace, ease, spaciousness, you know, relaxation, settledness, avenue to concentration, presence. All those things are there. As we take delight in that, as we develop a taste for that, that comes really to be our heart's preference. And when that establishes our heart's preference, it's much easier not to get on that train. Because we know where the train leads is to being beset with all the confusion and disturbance and worry and hope and fear that Papancha stirs up. And we develop a preference for staying settled in the peace, the quiet, the concentration, of non-proliferation. So, I think that's the message of this sutta. And um, I'll just leave with one question. Is there a problem in life, in your life, if you don't think about it? Or are all problems constructed by thinking they're a problem? Okay, so that was the study for today. Thank you for your attention and hanging in. Any last questions before we finish? Yes. It's more of an observation. Uh, it seems like the sutras and the Buddhist words are what in Tibetan practice are called pointing out instructions. A lot of them are very direct pointings to how to hold the mind in meditation. And I think this is one of those. Then there are a lot of teachings about conduct also um, that aren't so much of that nature, but you know, tell us how to behave helpfully in the world. But a lot of them are really direct pointers to how to hold the mind, the quality of mind, the nature of mind. Yeah. yeah thanks. Sean?
Okay. If you don't want to take your paper. I'm, so, I'm sorry, we, sorry we don't have an actual honey ball. Okay. Thank you all for coming. Nice to hang out with everyone. Thanks for your participation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.